Hey, Weeds listeners, this is Sarah Cliff, but this is not The Weeds. This is a brand new podcast. This is our pilot episode. We're still figuring out if we're going to do a first season, and it is so new that we do not have a name for this podcast. So I have two requests of you, and they both involve sending an email to weeds at vox.com. First, I want you to send us your suggested names. We are desperate for some good name ideas because all of ours are terrible. And second, I want you to send us feedback on this episode. What you liked about it, what you didn't like, topics you'd want us to cover if we do do a full season. If you want to hear a full season of this podcast, please send us an email and let us know that. So with that, I will let you get to listening. Happy listening and happy Thanksgiving. Laura Marston's apartment is pretty average for a 34-year-old living in D.C. The rooms are pretty small, and she's got these two pet cats running around. And at first glance, her fridge, it seems pretty normal, too. I mean, you can see there's bread, there's eggs, there's, like, sodas and protein shakes. Then she opens up the vegetable crisper, and it's got all these plastic bags full of white prescription boxes. Two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, thirteen vials of insulin. So this has like a street price of like 3600 something like that. That number isn't far off. Each vial holds less than a tablespoon of insulin, but its retail price is around $250. Which is obviously really, really expensive, especially given that it didn't used to be this bad. A vial was just $20 when Laura was first diagnosed in 1996. So you have the same drug, the same packaging, but now it's 10 times more expensive. And Laura has no way of knowing if that price will keep climbing. It's just, it's kind of a terrifying existence. And it's not just Laura and her insulin. This is a pattern we see over and over again. Back in August... The cost of EpiPens are on the rise. And back in 2015, there was that pharma bro, Martin Shkreli, who jacked up the price of a key malaria and HIV drug. One tablet of Daraprim used to cost $13.50. The drug maker recently increased the price to $750. It's all part of this really big and uniquely American story. It's widely known that spending on prescription drugs continues to rise. We can't afford the drugs. Why are the drugs so expensive? They consistently will take price increases, sometimes every six months, sometimes every quarter. Can anything be done to stem the tide to help those Americans struggling to pay for their prescription drugs? Today, we want to talk through some of those questions. I'm Sarah Cliff. And I'm Liz Sheltons. And in this episode, we're going to tell you why the prices of prescription drugs are so incredibly high in the United States. We'll talk about how our policies have led to the prices that we have. And we'll walk through the impacts of those policies, the good and the bad. So, Laura, she is an example of the negative side effects that high drug costs can have. Over the decades, she's watched the price of her brand of insulin just go up and up and up. And it's not just her brand. The two other companies that make insulin have also bumped up their prices. Right. And because Laura has type 1 diabetes, going without insulin is not an option. Without insulin, I would die quicker than most people would without water. So it would be like the water was controlled by three companies and they could charge you whatever they wanted. Ever since she was diagnosed, Laura has been making very careful choices about what to study and where to work, 
all so that she can be sure she has a job with insurance that will cover the ballooning price of her insulin. But so you went to law school in part just so you could get health insurance? In part. Everything in my life is just so I can get health insurance. I mean, everything is. But even though Laura structured everything around making sure her insulin was paid for, she couldn't plan for the recession. And when the economy crashed, Laura lost her job. As a lawyer, you'll get a severance package. But when that's up, you lose insurance effective that day. To afford her insulin, Laura took on credit card debt. She cashed out her 401k. My parents lent me money out of their retirement. It, it was horrifying. That's why Laura has this extra insulin stashed in her fridge. If she ever loses her job again, if her insurance doesn't come through, she never, ever wants to worry about where her next vial of insulin will come from. So you would consider, like, in a doomsday situation? Well, I mean, let's be honest. Like, doomsday, my chances aren't good. Um, and, like, if, if tomorrow they decided insulin cost a million dollars a vial, I'm using these. You know what I mean? Okay, so for Laura, the rising cost of insulin is not just a theoretical thing. It's an issue that she really worries about and has shaped her life. And what's so crazy about this, Liz, is that it might not be an issue at all if Laura lives somewhere else in the world, like if she lived in Europe or if she lived in Australia. Right, that same insulin vial that costs Laura $250 in the States, it costs 16 pounds in the UK. That's a little more than 20 bucks. And it's not just insulin. In general, medications cost much less in other developed countries than they do here in the United States. And that is because most developed countries have big government health systems that cover everyone. Socialized medicine. <laughs> sure. In Britain, they do have something called the National Health Service. The NHS. This is an NHS PSA from 1948. This new health service will be organized on a national scale as a public responsibility. Everyone will pay for it. And everyone will benefit. If you need treatment in Britain, the NHS pays for it. And because the NHS covers everybody, it can haggle with pharmaceutical companies to get lower prices for prescription drugs. So here's how that works. Sarah, um, have you ever seen the movie You've Got, Got Mail? Mail. I hear nothing. Not even a sound on the streets of New York. Just the beat of my own heart. I have mail. From you. I think I saw it at some point in middle school, maybe. Okay, so here's what you need to know. It's a romantic comedy, of course, starring Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Meg Ryan owns this cute little children's bookstore, and Tom Hanks is opening a soulless big box competitor just down the block. A Fox book superstore. It has nothing to do with us. It's big, overstocked, and full of ignorant salespeople. But they discount. But they discount. You can think about the difference between the U.S. and Britain, sort of like the difference between Meg Ryan's small store and Tom Hanks's Fox Books. And instead of drugs, they're buying and selling books. I sell cheap books. I do, so sue me. The key thing here is how Tom Hanks's character can sell those books for so cheap. His giant chain, Fox Books, buys millions and millions of books from a publisher. So if Tom Hanks' character decides the price is too high and that he's just not going to buy the books, 
the publisher is going to lose millions of dollars, so they have to negotiate to bring their price down. And because Tom Hanks gets his books for cheap, he can pass that low price down to consumers as discounts. Meg Ryan's store, on the other hand... It is a, a charming little bookstore. You probably sell, what, $350,000 worth of books in a year? Tom Hanks is oh-so-romantically telling Meg Ryan that that's nothing compared to his millions in sales. The publishers can afford to lose Meg's business, so she can't really negotiate for lower prices. She has to take whatever price the publishers give her, and that's why her books are more expensive. All these American insurance companies are like Meg Ryan's stores. None of them have enough patience to really go toe-to-toe with big pharma companies like Eli Lilly, which makes Laura's insulin. But the NHS? They are like the Fox books of healthcare. They can go to Eli Lilly and say, look, here's the deal. You are selling us insulin for 16 pounds, not a shilling more, or we are walking away and you lose 60 million British customers. That is how the NHS gets lower prices for the British people. And because we don't do this, there are thousands of Americans like Laura. They worry about the price of drugs. They rack up debts to afford their medications. And some people skip doses to make their medications last longer. All right, Sarah, so this means if we want lower prescription drug prices in the U.S., we need a Fox Books, right? Something like Britain's NHS? Are we going to get socialized medicine? (laughs) Whoa, Liz. No, we actually already have an insurer that could be like Fox Books. Is it Medicare? It's Medicare. You are right. So Medicare covers all Americans 65 and older. Um, There are about 50 million people in it, which is only slightly smaller than the entire population of Britain. And some people think if we let Medicare negotiate and it becomes like Fox Books, it could force prices down. And those lower prices, they would ripple out to the rest of the healthcare system. This sounds like a great idea. I'm all for more Tom Hanks in my life. Let's do it. Yeah, so I'm sorry to burst the bubble, but we can't. Damn it. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. And you're going to tell me why, right? I am, but I am going to need some help to do it. I am Julie Rovner. I have now been covering health policy in Washington for 30 years. I was five when I started. Um, <laughs> and I think when I started covering health care, they were talking about prescription drugs. Now, 30 years later, they're still talking about prescription drugs. They were even talking about prescription drugs before Julie Rovner was covering health care. I was there when Lyndon Johnson signed the Medicare bill into law in 1965. That's the late Senator Ted Kennedy speaking on C-SPAN back in 2003. He was telling the audience that the very first version of Medicare covered a lot of things. Doctor's visits were in there. So were trips to the hospital. The one aspect that wasn't there was the prescription drugs. And that was something that Kennedy's constituents kept telling him they wanted him to change it. They say, Senator, when are you going to put in that prescription drug program? So he, along with a lot of other politicians, were trying to do just that. Proposals came up in the 1980s under Reagan, again in the 90s under Clinton. And didn't go anywhere. Every time this came up, the pharmaceutical industry pushed back. They did not want Medicare to cover prescription drugs because they were afraid of exactly the thing we've been talking about. This actually seems kind of weird. Like, if Medicare covered prescription drugs, that would mean a lot more business for pharmaceutical companies. 
But they were so worried about price controls, they said no to the whole thing. The theory was if the government starts paying for something in Medicare, eventually it will want to set the price. That, it, that was what the drug industry feared most, that they would just be another regulated provider of health care under Medicare. Okay, so something changed, right? Because Medicare does cover prescription drugs now. They pay for my grandmother's heart medication when I go to the pharmacy with her. Yes. Fast forward to 2003. In 2003, when George W. Bush got a Republican Congress for the first time, he thought, well, let's steal this issue from the Democrats and do it ourselves. Good morning. This week, I was honored to sign the Medicare Act of 2003. This new law will give seniors better choices and more control over their health care and provide a prescription drug benefit. So Kennedy finally got what he wanted. Not exactly. The bill did pass, but Kennedy, he was not happy about it. And that's why he was on C-SPAN on that day in 2003. It's a raw deal for the seniors uh, in this country. And Kennedy was not alone. Senator John McCain from Arizona was really mad, too. This package explicitly prohibits Medicare from using purchasing power to negotiating lower prices with manufacturer. How is that possible? In 2003, pharma was very clearly in bed with the Republicans. So the drug industry was very adamant, and they went in saying that their price for supporting this, and they did support it, was that the government not set prices. The drug industry basically said, you want Medicare coverage for prescriptions? You need to promise us they will never, ever be able to negotiate prices. Senator McCain, he had a really choice analogy for the whole thing. This legislation reminds me of the ancient medieval practice of leeching. Every special interest in Washington is attaching itself to this legislation and sucking Medicare dry. This was not the end of the fight. Four years after that huge coverage battle, so this is 2007, then-Senator Barack Obama took up the issue on the presidential campaign trail. Then we'll tell the pharmaceutical companies, thanks but no thanks for overpriced drugs. Drugs that cost twice as much here as they do in Europe and Canada and Mexico. We'll let Medicare negotiate for lower prices. So young, so idealistic. Let me guess, it didn't work out that way? It did not. Obama wanted his health care law to go through, but in order to do that, he had to get every single Democrat to support it. So he needed to get pharma on board. If pharma had been working against it, not a chance. Obama compromised. Obamacare passed, but Medicare still couldn't negotiate drug prices. And that is where we are today. The drug companies set their prices and Medicare pays them. So that's where things stand now. But we still hear politicians talking about Medicare negotiation. We heard Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, both on the campaign trail in 2016, saying that they thought it was a good idea. And the American people agree with them. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll shows that 83 percent of Americans think that it's a good idea. Well, it sounds really logical. I mean, that's why the public supports it. Well, of course, if they can negotiate, couldn't they get lower prices? Of course, the only way they could get lower prices is if they were to cover fewer drugs. This is the part that really doesn't come up much in arguments about letting Medicare be like a big box bookstore. But it's a really big trade-off, and we need to talk about it. Medicare, in order to negotiate, has to be willing to say, this drug is too expensive and we're not going to cover it. Right. Tom Hanks's Fox Books can only get lower prices because it's willing to walk away from the negotiating table. And it's pretty much the same with these big government healthcare systems like the NHS in Britain. 
they're not just negotiating on drug prices. They're also making some really tough choices about which drugs they're going to cover. It's a sensitive debate. Which new drugs can the NHS in England afford? This time it's the breast cancer drug Cadsila, a combination of Herceptin and That's from a BBC report in 2014. This new breast cancer drug had just come out, and the NHS was negotiating with the manufacturer to get a good price. Andrew Dillian was there. He was one of the negotiators for the NHS, and this is what he told the BBC. The price that the manufacturer wants to charge the NHS puts it well beyond anything that we could have supported. This is a drug that gave patients around six more months of life, but it would have cost the NHS the equivalent of $117,000 per patient. So instead of asking, hey, do you think Medicare should be able to negotiate lower prices? Julie Rovner thinks we should ask a different question. Well, would you still support Medicare negotiation if it meant there was a smaller choice of drugs? Um, People don't really like trade-offs. Okay, that's the short-term trade-off we're making. If Medicare is going to negotiate prices, it can't cover every single drug. And even if we're okay with that, we also have to consider a second, longer-term trade-off. Let's say Medicare does manage to bring prices down. If we do pay less for medications, we might get less new drug research. But that's really, that's the conversation we should be having, is what's the appropriate innovation to price trade-off we can accept? We can't just ignore the fact that we're going to get less innovation, stick our head in the sands and think that if we, if we cut prices today, there are no negative effects. This is Craig Garthwaite. He's an associate professor at the Kellogg School of Management. So let's be really clear about what Craig is not saying. It is not that the money you make in profits today is then reinvested in research and development in the future. We hear this kind of argument from pharmaceutical companies all the time. Like, oh, I need to charge lots of money for this drug so that I can take that money and put it into making new drugs. Craig says that is not how it works. Right. He said it's more about people trying to decide whether they're going to invest in the first place. So imagine that Craig is a venture capitalist. He's sitting down at his desk with this giant pile of money. I've got $10 million to invest in any number of products, right? One of which might be the next, you know, great social media app that generates no value but people still pay for, and one of which is a potential cure for pancreatic cancer. So if venture capitalist Craig sees that Medicare is driving down the price of prescription drugs, he might say, you know what, there isn't a high enough chance I'll profit from this. I'm going to go invest in that social media app or cell phone game. Which could potentially leave us with a bunch of new cell phone games instead of new innovative drugs. Except, okay, we need to make a really important distinction here. Not all expensive new drugs are actually all that innovative. There's a huge difference between breakthrough drugs, these new pills that cure a disease, and tweaks, where you just kind of update a drug that already exists. Small changes in the expected value of life from a drug are getting pretty outsized rewards. Which brings us back to Laura and her insulin. There are some diabetes technologies that are really new. Laura showed us this great gadget that feeds data about her blood sugar into her smartwatch. If you Google it, you can see Nick Jonas wear this, which is like way more appetizing than me, I'm sure. It's the latest, greatest. But insulin 
We figured out how to isolate it back in the 1920s. And yes, there have been tweaks and improvements over time. But the World Health Organization says that those tweaks don't really make enough of a difference in patients' lives to justify the ballooning cost. So for Laura... Okay, I'll pay more for for the fancy thing that transmits to my watch. But when it comes to insulin, I'm just trying to live. So, Liz... You were there with me in Laura's apartment. It's just such a hard situation she's dealing with. And being there, seeing her insulin that costs so much money and how she's organizing her life around it. I just have this impulse where I want to fix it. I know, me too. And the whole time I'm thinking, there has to be an easy way to do this. There has to be an easy fix, but it's harder than it seems. There are always going to be trade-offs. Like, consider Laura's situation. On the one hand, we could stick with the system we have now, where Laura chooses her insulin and it's $250 and it's so expensive for her to afford. On the other hand, we could switch to a system that negotiates, but that's risky for Laura too. She could end up with a lower price for her drug, or it might be a situation where the government says they're going to cover a different type of insulin, and all of a sudden, nobody's willing to pay for the insulin she's been taking for 20 years. And if we do decide to go that route, We might have to accept that we'll get less innovation in the drug market. If we want to lower drug prices, if we want to help people like Laura out, that's fine. That is a totally appropriate policy priority. We just have to realize that in order to do that, we have to make some sacrifices. All right, so that was our podcast. We had so much fun making it. A lot of thank yous for the work that went into this. Um, First and foremost, our producer, the amazing Bird Pinkerton. We had engineering help from Peter Leonard and AC Valdez. And thank you so much to Joss Fong and Ezra Klein for some of their feedback along the way. And now we have just a little bit of work for you. As you are traveling home for Thanksgiving or making a turkey, whatever you are doing, don't forget to send us an email at weeds at vox.com with two things, ideas for what we should name this podcast and any feedback you have on this episode, whether you want to hear a full season, please, please, please send all of that to weeds at vox.com. And we are so eager and excited to read all of your emails. Thank you so much in advance. (laughs) 